Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, and welcome back to our latest episode of the Cast. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of bringing into the show Brigadier General Stacy Joe Fusa. Now, for those of you that don't know her, she is the Principal Assistant Deputy Administrator for Military Applications, National Nuclear Security Administration, Department of Energy, Washington, D.C. That's a... Uh, that's quite a, uh, a mouthful. And she is also the, she assists the deputy administrator for defense programs to maintain the safety, security, and reliability of the nation's nuclear weapons stockpile. Of course, she is a missileer. And for those of you that may recall, I spent quite a bit of time in the missile fields over my career with the Air Force. Uh, and so it is, of course, a great pleasure to welcome you in to NucleCast. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And that is the longest duty title I have ever had <laughs> in my life. <laughs> it, uh, I, uh, I will say it is uh, quite, the, uh, quite the duty title. <laughs> so as we, you know, one of the things we like to do at the beginning of any show is, is find out a little bit about our guests. And so I, of course, am told uh, from my minions that are dispersed all across the uh, the Air Force, that you have a great story that many of our listeners may not know. What is that story? All right. Well, I, I don't know how, how great it is, but it probably is a little bit different from what uh, most of your folks in the nuclear enterprise have as a background. Uh, both my parents were born and raised Amish, so horse and buggy, no electricity, Amish. My mom was one of 17 children, and my dad was one of seven. So both of them grew up in that lifestyle. Uh, my mom didn't finish high school. My dad did. Uh, he only did because he switched over, what we call switched over, to English when he was 13. So he was able to finish high school. My mom eventually got her GED, which she's very proud of, but of course, neither of them went to college because that's not something that Amish do in addition to not completing high school. So I am first generation college graduate, uh, but grew up with Amish aunts and cousins. And I have about a hundred cousins of which most of those seem to be Amish because uh, one of my aunts stayed Amish and was very prolific at having children. <laughs> so I have a lot of Amish relatives. So it's pretty, it's a pretty unique family. Yeah. I've, uh, you know, like many people with, you know, you, you see there's, I think there was a show for a while that would follow the Amish when they would go on their rumspringa. And so I, I've seen some episodes of that. So yes. <laughs> I, I was about to ask you, is that how you came to the Air Force was your... Your room spring, but I guess not. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I didn't. I personally did not grow up Amish, but I grew up eating the food, which is amazing. You know, it's funny here uh, in in Missouri. There's if you go from say Kansas City towards down south uh, and east towards Springfield, there's there's uh, a lot of Amish in that area, and there's actually a very famous Osceola cheese is a very famous. It's you know it's the Amish cheese, and it's like hundreds of varieties. And if you're going to Branson from Kansas City, you always stop and get your cheese. Oh so, yes. So we have our we have our Amish here in Missouri as well. <laughs> That's great. Well, it, what's funny is when I was stationed up at Minot, North Dakota, at the ICBM wing up there, um, that's where my grandfather initially lived. So a lot of my aunts and uncles came up to North Dakota to try and find the old homestead, which was really a fun experience for me to be in North Dakota at the time. Oh, I bet. I bet. I, I've, you know, it's funny. Uh... I spent a couple of winters in North in Minot, so uh, you know I can only imagine how cold it would have been in the winters before you had electricity and mm-hmm. you know you you were just heating your your hearth with a fire. So exactly, uh, it's uh, good times though. So you're in D.C. at uh, DOE headquarters at the Forstall Building, working for NNSA, and as the the DOD's lead, uh, working you know, between the DOD and the DOE, you know, you sit in a really interesting position with a lot of duties um, to help with, you know, where DOD employs the weapons and develops the delivery vehicles. DOD owns the warheads. How do you see your position as sort of, you know, being that liaison in integrating the two departments, which are very different? Uh, and, you know, just like NNSA is largely program management, scientists, engineers, as opposed to warfighters. How do you see your role uh, and, and how do you say how would you suggest it's to be successful in that position? Yeah, well, exactly like you said, we have these huge two departments, the DOD and the DOE. DOD, you know, it employs uh, the weapons, uses the weapons, designs and, and fields of delivery vehicles. DOE actually designs and produces the weapons that they then transfer over to the DOD. And and they are two very different organizations. They speak different languages. They have different acquisition processes. Uh, they have different ways of doing budgeting. So it's it's important and I love being in this position where I'm kind of like a glorified liaison between these two huge departments. I'm, I'm the senior officer that can speak both languages and knows all the players on both sides. So I see my role as helping them work together, helping them not only understand the basics like language and budgeting, but understanding what the challenges are that both sides face, understanding how they can advocate on behalf of each other, understanding how they can both deliver the same messages to Congress Mm -hmm. uh, to ensure stable funding for both departments. So I I am that person. There's always a nuclear one star in this position. It can be Navy or Air Force, but traditionally the last, at least as far as I can remember, it's been an Air Force one star in this spot with either an ICBM or a bomber background. 
And as you think through the position, you I mean, you've been in it for over a year now, so you've got some time in the job. What would you say is the biggest challenge? The hardest thing is now I am the them. Uh, I, <laughs> I used to be part of the DOD. Now I am the DOE and I'm them. So the, the hard thing I see is getting our DOD counterparts uh, just getting them the background and understanding so so they can fully appreciate the challenges that DOE and specifically the NNSA have to overcome because NNSA has suffered through the same neglect in our nuclear enterprise that the DOD has suffered. So we're trying to rebuild just like the DOD is trying to rebuild. And it's helping them to just see and experience the many hurdles and just huge projects that NNSA is undertaking in order to get the entire nation to, to a good place where we need to be with our nuclear enterprise. Now, you mentioned the, the, you know, sort of this neglect and over the last 30 years where we, you know, we had the peace dividend, Vladimir Putin has made sure that we now know that peace dividend is over. Uh, and so as you look at the DOE's complex, what would you say are the areas where uh, DOE could, you know, the, this aging complex could potentially impact our ability or the DOD's ability to deliver the weapons? Are there certain, you know, uh, capabilities, certain facilities that you would say, man, these are really problematic and they, they could, you know, they could break that chain? Well, the NNSA has a series of projects that they're undertaking right now to, to address those very concerns. We're building a new uranium processing facility and a new lithium processing facility, and we're pursuing our own organic capabilities uh, for high explosive production. Um, and I, everybody has heard the focus on plutonium pit production. So that's a big effort. So we, we have a list of capabilities and facilities and processes and infrastructure and human beings that all need to be brought up to speed in order to meet our future needs. And all of those projects are currently underway, of which I'm very grateful for. But as you know, if it requires a new building, it's gonna take a while to get there. One of the things that is, you know, kind of an interesting dilemma is that as we look at what government funding, and so government, you know, will work in one or two year cycles. But our projects often are, you know, five or 10 or 15 years. And so it, 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 in many respects, it's hard to budget where you have these two very different ways of going about it. How do you think through and, and ensure the stability that's required, you know, to, to bring, you know, uh, plutonium pit, you know, the, the facility at Los Alamos? You know, I toured it early after it was completed and, you know, sort of watch that, that facility get built. And, and you know, just the, the length of time, particularly in the DOE and the NNSA because of the, the safety and security concerns for those buildings, you can't put them up quickly. So how do you ensure that those long-term projects 
you know, that there's this ability to meld the two budgeting approaches? Well, it really is ensuring that we're both speaking. And when I say both, the DOD and the DOE are both speaking the same messages. And we have been, which I'm very grateful for. When we're talking to Congress, it helps to have those joint sessions where you have members of NNSA and members of the DOD together talking to congressional members, which we have been doing. We need that stable funding. We need the members and their staffers to understand the details of these projects and we brief them often and in great detail so that they understand how the projects are going, how many years they're going to take, how many moving parts are involved to ensure that consistent funding is there. I think we started and stopped pit production at least five times over the last couple of decades because there yeah. just wasn't that that consistent advocacy and consistent support for funding, which we now have, um, but we need to, just like you said, we just need we need to keep that drumbeat. Both departments need to keep that drumbeat in order to ensure that all these projects uh, stay funded and stay on track. Now, as as you think through, I mean, you've uh, you know, for those who can, you know, your bios publicly available on the Air Force's website, so people can look at look you up and see where you've been. Uh, I want to just sort of step back a minute and ask you which of all of your jobs over the years, over the past 20 plus years, was your most interesting job, the one you enjoyed the most? So I definitely enjoyed being a squadron commander the most. That is the point in your career where you are closest with the people that you're charged to lead. And um, the squadron I led was a very small, unique squadron. It fell under 20th Air Force, so it fell in the ICBM mission, but it was located at Omaha with STRATCOM. So it was, uh, you worked for 20th Air Force, but your boss was not right there. So we operated almost like a mini wing. I got to make budgeting decisions, personnel decisions, mission decisions, all on my own. I worked directly with STRATCOM personnel, which was fun, always is fun working with STRATCOM and had a group of 35 people. So I knew them intimately. I knew their families. We cried together and laughed together and celebrated together. And so it was probably, not probably, it was by far my favorite assignment. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, as I was going back through your bio to sort of refresh my memory, uh, and that was one of the things that struck me is I was like, hey, wait a second. She, her squadron command was not out at one of the wings. And so, uh, you know, that was an interesting thing. So it's funny that you should bring that up as your favorite, uh, your favorite time. Now, if we jump back to NNSA, uh, as you look to the future, and let's suppose hypothetically, I, I like to run hypothetical. So hypothetically, your, you know, your tour is done at NNSA and you are turning over to your replacement. What would be sort of the advice that you would give your replacement about the job and how to be successful and what to focus on? So I was very nervous moving to the NNSA. There's not a lot of military people there. Um, it's all these civilians who are extremely brilliant and talented 
and it was very intimidating. But I got in there and realized that they are just truly passionate about what they're doing for the enterprise, what they're doing in their particular positions, what they're doing for their individual missions. Uh, they're passionate about taking care of each other. Um, and I have found that my job, at least what I've turned it into, is really in my wheelhouse. It's all about communicating like I said, communicating between the DOD and the DOE, communicating within the DOD and within the DOE. And I would tell whoever takes over for me who I know will be more amazing at this job than I could even hope to be. But I would tell them that it, it really is about the relationships. I know we say that so often that it becomes a cliche, but it really is about the relationships. It's about ensuring that trust and transparency are maintained between uh, both of these departments and that if they can, if they only do that, if they only build trust and ensure transparency, then they would have been highly successful in their job. Are there any, as you think through the sort of the programs and projects that are ongoing, are there any that you would potentially tell your successor, hey, Focus on on these. The the big things I would tell them you know, as a member of the DoD working at NNSA is to make sure that when the military has a delivery platform that they're relying on a weapon for, for example, LRSO and the W eighty four, that you need to keep an eye on those schedules to make sure that when the DoD is ready that the weapon is ready for them. Um, just to keep an eye on that and to make sure that the DOD is kept informed of DOE schedules and vice versa, that the DOE is kept informed of DOD schedules. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Could you maybe jump in a little deeper in terms of this sort of symbiotic relationship that exists where, you know, in NSA, uh, you know, and, and as I've worked with DOE over the years, it is a very different beast than the DOD. And it can be uh, more, I found it to be oftentimes more bureaucratic. And sort of more, you know, there's much more to do to get to the same point as, you know, you know, from everything with security to just making things happen. And, and so could you maybe jump into the sort of this need to keep these schedules together? You know, the, the things that are going on with warheads, 
um, because as we, you know, we've got B21 and we've got LRSO and we're, you know, the B, the B52 is only going to be delivering LRSO. And, you know, we've, we've got, uh, you know, B61 modernization. We've got, you know, Sentinel coming online. All of the, you know, it's, it's sort of a unique time. What is it that you're thinking through and working on in terms of making sure all these parts fit together? Yeah, the NNSA right now is working on five different weapons, what we call weapons programs of record. And it's an enterprise that was sized for one and a half at a time. So that alone is a huge undertaking. Um, but just like you said, you know, one of the things that we work on as far as keeping costs and schedule, meeting the needs of the DOD is we have been improving conversations between the two departments a lot lately. Um, the DOD sets the requirements for the weapons, the military characteristics that they need for the weapons, and then the DOE designs and produces them to meet those. Now, if there's something that is overly complex or hard to produce, then conversations between those two departments take place and concessions are made. And, and those are great and wonderful because that a lot of those conversations weren't happening in the past. So we've come a long way. Um, oh shoot, I was gonna make another point and now it escapes me. All right, hopefully it'll come to me. It, it always comes later when you're not <laughs> even thinking about it. Uh, so is there one particular program that you see needs a little more care and feeding than any of the others? Because you mentioned five, which is, you know, as I, you know, I was at Kansas City, uh, the Kansas City plant um, recently, and they mentioned sort of this whole idea of, hey, man, we, we've got a lot of programs going on. And, and you know, as I talked to counterparts at Livermore and, and Lanol and Sandy and elsewhere, there, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of growth. There's a lot of uh, attempts to bring in new new talent, you know, young folks for an aging workforce. Um, is there any specific program that you see that needs a lot of care and feeding just because of potential pitfalls? I would say, in my opinion, the one that, that needs probably the most attention isn't necessarily because of the pitfalls, but because of how important it is. And that's the W87-1, which is gonna be fielded on the Sentinel ICBM system. And the reason I like to focus on that one is that is the weapon where we're not planning on reusing anything in the production of that weapon. So that weapon is driving, it's what we're using to drive the rest of our of our enterprise at the NNSA, all of our infrastructure. We're using it to drive all of those projects because we need those projects in order to support building that particular weapon. So we're using it to drive the whole enterprise. Could you maybe give us, a, you know, for whatever you can, give us a little more about the 87, what's different, what's interesting? Um, the the big thing in the eighty seven one, it, it, and a lot of people don't realize that our our programs, our weapons programs, reuse a lot of parts from dismantled weapons. So you have to keep up a certain dismantlement rate in order to reuse whatever parts or materials you need to in the next weapon that you're working on. The W eighty seven one is special in that we are not planning on using any reused parts or materials in that weapon. So all newly built manufactured. 
Oh, okay. I don't think I had ever heard that. So that's a that's an interesting thing, particularly as we think about the industrial base's ability to build new parts, to you know, some of the capabilities that we've lost over the years. And then as, you know, as missileers have had to cannibalize old systems, you know, to, to repair and replace new ones. So this in, in some respects it seems, at least from my understanding of what you said, is pretty important in helping us to establish the industrial base's ability to produce replacement parts and for, you know, for with Sentinel, you know, expected to be, you know, in place for 50 years, we're certainly going to need uh, that ability. Exactly. Hu- hugely important. Yes. Now, as you look at, um, take a look, you know, you know, if you put your, your Air Force uniform back on and, and take a look at, the DOD side of it. And what do you see as sort of the potential challenges or pitfalls or concerns, areas of concern for the delivery vehicle modernization program that's in place right now? Are there any or is everything just sailing along as as we need it to? So I, I, of course, will not speak on their behalf, but as a informed military member, uh, they're facing the same daunting challenge that we are in the DOE. They have a lot of programs, delivery platform programs that are occurring simultaneously. They have the B-21, they have Sentinel, they have LRSO, they have the Columbia-class submarine. So they have equally a huge number of programs that they're working on at the same time that all have tight schedules um, that are using a a workforce that we're all competing to use. Uh, And it's just, it's it's a lot at once and we are all depending on a lot to go right in order to meet these tight schedules. As you look forward, you know, the next five or 10 years, do you see our modernization program being able to effectively deter our adversaries? Uh, Or do you see, you know, I mean, both the Russians and the Chinese are watching us and they're very clearly looking to see exactly what we're going to do. And so, you know, for example, with the 87 and the ability to build all new components, that's, uh, at least for me, that's pretty exciting because it clearly demonstrates our commitment to the nuclear enterprise. You know, as you sort of mull it around in in your mind, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, as you think through all of these larger, you know, deterrence issues, what's what's going through your head? I I do think that all of these efforts support our underlying deterrence. I also believe they support our assurance of our allies. They support the nonproliferation efforts uh, that our nation needs us to support um, because we're we're building infrastructure, we're building weapons, we're building delivery platforms, and we're, we're reconstituting a lot of nuclear command and control and communications, which sometimes is very difficult to see that that's happening. But our, our adversaries, as you said, are very well aware that all of this is occurring. And it should be very scary to them that we're doing all of this and we're successfully doing all of this right now. And not only are we going to do all of this, but we've also mapped out 20, 30, 40 years from now and all the other things we're going to do when this current round of efforts are complete. 
So we have a lot going on. Uh, like I said, it is, it's very daunting. It's very challenging. Um, schedules are challenging. Personnel is challenging. Uh, congressionally supported funding is challenging, but it's all supported currently, and we plan on it being supported well into the future. Well, that's always good to hear. It's <laughs> certainly, uh, uh, you know, hope for the positive outlook. And now as we, you know, we've got a few minutes left in the show. And so let me ask you, as you think uh, about congressional testimony and talking to the Hill, what are the sort of the big messages or the main themes that, that you would go to the, to the Hill and, and express to congressional staffers? What would you, what do you tell them? What would you tell them? Well, what I think the, the, both the DOD and, DOE and NSA have been very good at doing in the last couple of years is painting the threat picture. Before they get in, even get into the programs of record, they paint a picture of the current threat that we're seeing from our adversaries. What are our adversaries modernizing? What are they working on? What are they building new? Um, how many? They paint that picture first and then they tell congressional members, this is what we're going to do to counter that threat and to assure our allies. And I think it, it really goes a long way for giving them that understanding of what our nation is facing before we turn and say, and this is why you need to support what we're working on. And have you found that Congress has been, you know, there was uh, some concern over this, you know, there were discussions within Congress of a no first use or a sole, sole purpose, you know, doctrine. Uh, there have been calls by individual members to remove the president's ability to, you know, to make a decision alone. As you deal with, with the Hill, uh, what has been your experience? Uh, are they sort of open, you know, just open to listening to what, what you have to say? Or is there... You know, is it a solid relationship? How does that, that work? Many folks don't really understand how that relationship works. I, I found in my interactions that they're incredibly open. Uh, when I was stationed at STRATCOM, we had members who would come sit with Admiral Richard and actually watch how a nuclear scenario would play out and all the conversations that occur and all the checks and balances that are in place and you know what our adversaries might be thinking or doing, what we would be thinking or doing. And it, that constant education really goes a long way. And in my current role, I have been surprised and impressed with how engaged we are with staffers and members on all of the projects that we're working on and the amount of details that they know and understand the, the incredibly intelligent questions they ask it shows a level of commitment and support that I didn't realize was there until I got into this position. Yeah, that's, it's always, it's good to hear. Cause you know, one of the concerns that we talked to Senator Kramer a couple of weeks ago and, you know, with Senator Kyle leaving, who had sort of specialized, he's one of the few folks who had specialized in nuclear issues and sort of led on the Senate side. Um, there was concern that, that there might not be sort of a champion in the House or the Senate. But it from from what you're saying, it seems that there are staffers and, you know, Senator Kramer and others who are 
uh, Congressman Cooper and others who were who have taken up that mantle, and so that's all. all you know, that's encouraging. Uh, now, as we end the show, is there sort of a main takeaway that you would would want to leave our listeners with? You know, as they think through NNSA or modernization, some of these big issues. What sort of main takeaway would you, would you pass on to the listeners? I'd want them to understand something that I didn't realize, particularly with the NNSA. We have over 50,000 people between NNSA and our three national laboratories and our four production sites and our test site. And they are so incredibly passionate about the work that they do in supporting the nuclear deterrence mission. But it helps if they can see and meet with the people who are benefiting from their efforts. So if there are DOD military members who can pay visits to our labs or our production sites and talk with the people who are working there and vice versa, when our our lab plant and site personnel can go visit nuclear installations like Minot Air Force Base or STRATCOM, it's huge for them to get a picture of where their efforts are going, what they're actually supporting. Uh, words are one thing, but seeing it is is a whole nother story and talking with the military personnel is a whole nother story. So as much as we can get the DOD and DOE personnel to visit each other and be with each other, you know, it builds trust, it builds transparency, but it also increases the sense of mission on both sides. All right, and we'll give you the last word. So I want to thank Brigadier General Stacy Joe Huser for coming on Nuclecast, and I want to thank the listeners for being here. So thanks very much for joining us on the show. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Hey, and welcome to Adam's Afterthoughts. We just had a great interview with Brigadier General Stacy Joe Huser, who is at the NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration, as the senior officer, the senior uniformed officer there. Now, we talked a lot about uh, modernization programs, the, the weapons programs, modernization of the nuclear enterprise. And one of the things that really stuck with me about that interview was when she said that the NNSA and the weapons labs, the, the, you know, the nuclear complex, is really structured to have one and a half programs going on at the same time, but we have five programs going on. And so the implications for that are really quite spectacular if you think about uh, a nuclear complex that doesn't move quickly because it has to be focused on security and safety. So therefore everything uh, compared to traditional industry takes a lot more time. And so that really struck me because of, of being, you know, that's essentially three times what they're structured to do. And so wondering about how do we do that effectively? How do we grow? How do we find the talent? How do we accomplish these really complex and innovative tasks 
with a, a complex that's trying to grow to meet that challenge. And I think that was sort of my big afterthought and takeaway for it. We have a great country. Uh, we have a great challenge in front of us with the Russians and the Chinese, and they see an opportunity to try to advance their own interest at the expense of ours. And so thinking through that with General Husser was really interesting. And so that's Adam's afterthoughts. <laughs>